Let's turn to Hebrews then. Our scripture lesson this morning, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. We're studying this book together. We begin chapter 2, um, and I'll read with to you the word of God. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1, excuse me, 1 through 9. Okay, here's the reading of God's word. The book of Hebrews, is Bible's in the back if you don't have one. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, the writer says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor and because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. May God add a a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Let me just give you a a quick update. As, As I've said before, we're not quite sure exactly who the divine, excuse me, the human author is, but we're sure who the divine author is, okay? Paul told Timothy that, uh, all scripture is God breathed, breathed out of God. Peter wrote that there was given to us by men who were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we don't know who the human author is, we know who the divine author is, and it is God. God is giving to us his word. And what I did this morning is give you a succinct purpose statement of what the book of Hebrew is all about. The book of Hebrew, the purpose of the book, and sum it up into one sentence is this. It is to declare the superiority, supremacy, and sufficiency of Christ as an exhortation to remain faithful in the midst of persecution. The supremacy, superiority, and sufficiency of Christ as an exhortation to remain faithful in the midst of persecution. You remember, there's a Jewish congregation who are under severe persecution and they are being called to not go back, not to go back to Judaism, not to go back to their ritualism. And, and the purpose was to exhort them, to encourage them, chapter 13, 22, not to fall away, but to press on, not to renounce Christ, even though they were under pressure, but to grow in maturity. How? By Showing forth by, by, by showing them the beauty and the, and the incalculable worth and value of Christ. And it's coupled with warnings. We'll see one. An exhortation is not just an encouragement. It's, it's kind of like, listen to this. There are six warnings that are in this book, and we'll look at one of them today. And the author begins this letter saying that God speaks. We looked at that. That God spoke in the past, and now we spoke now, today, in these last days. Last days mean the resurrection of Jesus, his ascension until his return, where is the last days. And he said, Jesus is not just another prophet of old. Jesus is the ultimate and final word. Jesus is God who put on humanity and revealed the glory as no other person has done because he is God himself to humanity. And then the author gave us seven affirmations, if you remember, about this Jesus, this God-man. Chapter 2, chapter 1, verse 2, seven affirmations. He's appointed the heir of all things, the creator of the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe, made purification of sins, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, number seven. Incredible testimony. Last week we said, well, sounds great of who this Jesus is, 
Do you have anything to back it up? And, and the author turns to seven Old Testament passages to substantiate his argument that Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh, and because he is, he is superior to all things. And he starts with being superior to angels. We looked at that last week. So in other words, the author wants us to see is that Christ is supreme. He is superior, and he is sufficient, greater than angels. For whatever angel did he say, verse 5, you are my son, today I have begotten thee. What angel did he ever say to, to worship anyone else but God? He said to, to the son, though, let all God's angels worship him. Verse 6. So you see, he's, he's setting this up. Verse 8. No angel did God, ever, did God ever say or call God. Look at verse 8, chapter 1, verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. No angel has an eternal throne. No angel has ever loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Verse 9. No angel is the agent of creation. No angel has ever has been, is, is eternal. No angel is ever invited to sit at the right hand of Almighty God, a place of honor and authority. No angel is co-equal, co-eternal, co-existing with the Son. That's what he's getting to in all of the rest of chapter 1. But the Son, in this unique relationship, eternally past, but yet has come to us in the person of Christ. Seven affirmations, seven substantiations of the Old Testament. And now in chapter 2, verse 1, he's saying, pay close attention. That's the reason, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, everything I just said, all about Jesus, the, the revelation of God, all the affirmations, all the Old Testament scriptures, therefore... We must pay close attention. And as we move forward in chapter 2, I want us to see one last thing. I didn't get a chance to mention it the first two times. Let me just drop it in here for free. Hebrews, chapter 1 and 2, and really all of Hebrews, portrays Christ as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. The three offices of the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills them and completes them and is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He's the ultimate prophet. Chapter 1, verse 2, in the last days spoken to us by his son. It's the word of the prophets were to reveal. He is the ultimate revelation of God. Chapter 1, verse 3, after making purifications for sins. That's the role of a priest. He is not only the, the, the priest, but he's also the sacrifice. Again, chapter 2, verse 17. He, Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to advert the wrath of God for the sins of his people. So he's, he's the prophet, he's the priest, and he's the king. Chapter 1, verse 3, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Chapter 1, verse 13, he's reigning at the right hand of God. He's the ultimate king. So you see this theme Jesus, the ultimate prophet, revealed God perfectly. He's the ultimate priest who gave his life for sins. He's the ultimate king as he reigns and rules on the right hand of the Father. You see that. And as we move forward into chapter 2, we'll see those themes you could talk about in community group um, when you get together over the next couple of weeks, the themes of prophet, priest, and king. But as we move to chapter 2, what I want us to see as we continue on in this Jesus is better than angels is... Three things. One is they need to heed the message. There's a heeding of the message. Number two, there's helping the inflicted, and I'll explain that, what I mean by that. And then finally, we'll end with honoring the, the, the Savior as we go to communion. So those are the three outline, uh, points of outline for this morning. Number one, heed the message. Again, verse one, therefore, everything I said, pay close attention, much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Now, we live in a very unique time. I won't say hard time. Everybody had a hard time. Different, you know, who's going to argue with whose time was harder, okay? But we live in a unique time where we're bombarded with all kinds of communication media. I mean, constantly, up-to-date, minute-by-minute advertisements, uh, commercials, Twitter, Facebook, political news, Instagram, and all kinds of ways in which we are given this Information, this communication, moment by moment, minute by minute, is pouring into our minds, through our eyes, and through our ears. We probably, most of us, don't stop to think how often this comes at us. And all this information is shaping you. It's shaping me. You don't have an option. It's shaping uh, the various aspects of our lives. It is shaping our worldview. 
And we must be intentional, brothers and sisters, family of God. We must be intentional on deciphering which messages are worthy of our attention. Are they getting the forefront of our mind? Are we deciphering through the scripture and getting a worldview according to what God has said? Very important. We're also living in a time where truth doesn't count for a whole lot. There's a bumper sticker I read recently. It says, my karma ran over your dogma. (laughs) It's become whatever you feel, whatever you think. Absolute truth is sorely absent, at least when we are speaking about the message of the scriptures, of salvation. If you make any kind of claim against the Bible, of course, that ultimate truth is okay. But if we stand on truths of Scripture, it's not okay. And, the arm, and their arguments against God, of course, seem tolerant to them and attractive. But to the writers of Scripture, to the inspired writers of Scripture, to the Lord himself, to the apostles, matters of truth are of the highest priority. And what we believe about Jesus is the most important thing, not only for your eternal destiny, your usefulness for God. But it will help us navigate. The the message of Scripture will help us navigate through life, in particular hardship and difficulties. F.F. Bruce writes this, The truth and teaching of the gospel must not be held lightly. They are of supreme moment. They are matters of life and death and must be cherished and obeyed at all costs. The danger of drifting away from them and so losing them cannot be treated too gravely, end quote. Our author gives us the first of six warnings. To pay much closer attention unless you drift away. The warnings are meant to keep us on the right path. Trusting God when the whole world feels like it's against you. Have you ever felt that way? Something going on in your life and you feel like everything is going wrong. Everyone seems to be against me. Remember, these believers were, were in the church were mixed, mixed with people that weren't believers. But, and we talked about that. But these were believers who were under severe persecution. Chapter 10 says they were in jail. Their houses were confiscated. Some of them were killed. All for trusting and putting their faith in Jesus, the Messiah. And I'll tell you something, in persecution, hard times, difficult times, and even good times, even the good times can really show you what you're trusting in, what you're made of, what you're relying upon. It is those times, those times that our hearts are revealed. And here the the author in the first few verses of chapter 2 are warning them, are warning me. This warning, family, listen, is not for them. Not for that person. I, I know I got someone in my mind. I, it's, they need to heed these warnings. No, you need to hear these more, heed these warnings. I need to heed these warnings and examine our hearts. It's a command, by the way. It's the first command in Scripture. We must pay attention. Pay attention means to listen up. It's emphatic. Listen close. Don't miss this. It's for you. It's for me. We have to remember This is on the heels of the beauty of Christ, the the glory of Christ, the king of the universe. And now he's saying, because of those things, pay attention, don't drift away. Why would the author write to a church and say, be careful, pay attention to the message so you don't drift away? I'll tell you why. Because in your heart, in my heart, there's the ability to drift away from the truth. Even if your heart has been regenerated by the Spirit, we have a tendency to draw away from Christ as things in this world become greater, become better, become more in focus than the beauty and glory of Christ, whether it be hardship or good times. And if we're honest, our hearts, if left to themselves, would slowly but surely drift away. If you just sit around and do nothing... Don't, don't take any disciplines to grow in your faith. You'll drift away from God. We sing a song here. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Here's my heart, O Lord. Take it and seal it for thy courts above. What's interesting is the Greek word to drift away is a nautical term, parareho, describing a ship that is sailing and drifting. It's just moving slowly. It, 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 it describes a, a ship that maybe has been loosened 
and now it's just drifting away. It's something that, that slowly takes you in a different directions. Have you ever asked yourself the question, how did I end up here? <laughs> right? How did I wind up here? How, how did I wind up in this person's bedroom? How did I wind up doing these horrific things? Usually it don't happen in one day. It's a slow drift away. Little by little. Something that happens for the most part unnoticed at first. What are some of those things? Maybe you stop coming to church. If you're here this morning, that's awesome. Maybe you're listening by CD or you watch the video later on. Maybe you stop coming to church and you slowly stop making that a priority. You slowly stop connecting with other believers. You slowly stop um, becoming under the word of God being preached. Maybe it's your affections. Maybe it's your busyness. Maybe it's your familiarity with the gospel and you think, well, I'm not, it's all that, not that great and you're not reminding yourself what a great sinner you are before you recognize the great grace of God. Whatever it is that's drawing you away from the ultimate satisfaction of Christ, it could be good things, it could be bad things. We talked about this before. It could be kids, grandkids, relationships, jobs, school, boyfriend, girlfriend, all those things that take primary focus and cause us to drift away. It could be habitual sin. We just talked about the, the, the issue of pornography. It could be habitual sin, not in the sense of your struggle with it, but you haven't really dealt with it. You haven't really repented from it. You haven't really confessed it and said, I got to deal with this. That will slowly drift you away. Not that you're ever going to be perfect. Nobody will. But what is it that you have not dealt with? You know what else caused us to drift away? Hardship, trials, and difficulties. That's what they're facing here in this letter. And we make a hundred excuses, right? When, when I, don't, I don't understand this, and, I, and I'm, I, I, I have my own hang-ups. Believe me, I do. Just ask my wife. Um, but when people face hardship, they make a thousand excuses why I don't come to church. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to walk closely with the Lord. They put everything that's important not to drift away on the back burner. Drifting away happens, really, without much effort. But staying on course requires constant persistence. Now, I want to be clear, and we're going to mention this a couple times we go through the book of Hebrews. We are not talking about, I am not talking about, I don't think the, the author is talking about, and there's an eternal difference between a genuine believer drifting away from God and those who really never were regenerated, born again, belonging to God, and they're drifting away. Some people take these verses that they can lose your salvation. You can be a genuine, genuine, regenerate, born again, belonging to God, uh, uh, child of God, and then lose it somehow as if their own salvation was their own works. Peter said our salvation is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven by God's power, guarded for you through faith for the salvation to be revealed. Jesus said, no one will snatch you out of my Father's hand. No one will snatch you out of my hand. That means you too. You ain't jumping out. A genuine Christian cannot ultimately lose their salvation, but they can drift away. Amen? Backslide, periods of disobedience, but ultimately genuine believers will preserve to the end. That's the proof of their genuine salvation. Now, who knows? I, I, I was talking with somebody this week. I don't know who is genuine, who's drifting away or not. That's not my job. That's between them and the Lord. I'm not going to judge that. I'm going to point them to Jesus. I'm going to hand them these warnings and say, come back to Jesus. I don't know who it is. If it's going to be a final, when they finally walk away and turn their back, we've known people that, that do that, right? You know, people, we've all known people who have walked with the Lord or seemed to walk with the Lord for years and all of a sudden completely renounce everything. How is that possible? Well, look at Judas. Look at, look at 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Who's us? The one that looked like Christians. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not from us. Drifting away entirely and completely only confirms that they never belong to God. In their final apostate, which means turning from God. Genuine believers will drift, but they'll come back. But I'm not, look, I don't have a binocular. I don't see people's hearts. 
I'm not, so I want to make it really clear. We're not judging someone. We're just saying, look, there are those that belong and there are those that don't. But I'm loving all people and calling all people and point all people to Jesus and let God sort it out. But then why bother warning believers? Because this letter was written to them. Listen carefully. And we're going to see this six times. The warnings is just one of the means by which God uses to keep us and to help us press on. The warnings is just one of the means by which God uses to keep us and to help us press on. In other words, God is saying, stay the course, keep the fight, pay attention. Dr. Michael Kruger, he's a a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, said this. This is a call for self-reflection to take seriously the warnings. Not because true believers can be lost, but because God uses warnings to help believers persevere. And to also make us conscious that we don't want to end up getting so far from God that we prove ourselves to never have known him in the first place, end quote. This message to take seriously because of the beauty of Christ, but look, look at other reasons. He gives us two other reasons, one negative, one positive. Look at verse two. First, the negative. Why should we pay attention to this message, take it so seriously? For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. He's gonna argue from the, from the lesser to the greater. We're gonna get to the New Testament. From the, from the lesson to the greater. What he's saying is the Old Testament covenant that was been given to us, mediated to us through the angels was very reliable and proved to be a warning to the people in the Old Testament. They're accountable to God, right? So the Old Testament covenant we know with blessings and, blessings and cursings, obedience and disobedience was valid and, and binding so much so that every transgression or disobedience received what? A just retribution. How many Old Testament passages can we cite? A lot. Number 16. Dora and Datham and Abiram rebelled against Moses. They got swallowed up in the earth. Aaron's sons offered strange fires, unauthorized fires. They were consumed by fire. The whole generation of the Israelites, because of their disobedience, they didn't trust the Lord, wandered for 40 years. Many of them died. They received a just retribution. And then many people look at the Old Testament, they see these acts of God. They see these, these acts of God where God is intervening and, and giving just retribution. And they're like, yeah, that God of the Old Testament, man, he's just not happy. You know, he's, he's an angry God, he's a vengeful God, you know, but, you know, we, he's chilled out a lot in the New Testament. Don't ask Ananias and Sapphira in Acts, who drop dead. Don't ask those who see Christ come back with vengeance, executing judgment upon the earth. But even with that, look at the next verse. What does it say in chapter 3, verse A? Chapter 3A. Who's he talking about? Now, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's us. That's you. That's me. If neglecting Moses and the law brought punishment, then neglecting the gospel brings even far greater punishment. The stakes go up in the New Testament. We have a greater revelation. You're here this morning. You know that Jesus came and lived the perfect life. You know that Jesus went to the cross and died for sins. You know that the tomb is empty. We celebrate it on Easter. If we think the consequences were stern regarding the law, how much more? catastrophic will the punishment be for ignoring it says or neglecting the word neglecting apathy lack of care with the gospel with the truth of the gospel this morning Calvin writes this it is not only the rejecting of the gospel but even the neglecting of it that deserves the severest penalty in view of the greatness of the grace which is offered in it God wishes his gifts to be valued by us at their proper worth. The more precious they are, the baser or the, or the further down is our ingratitude if they do not have the proper value. In accordance with the greatness of Christ, so will be the severity of God's vengeance on all dispersers of the gospel, despisers of the gospel, end quote. The beauty and glory and magnificence of Christ 
Don't neglect it. And, and, and here's the positive. Not only will there be judgment, but look at the positive now. It's declared first by the Lord. Jesus himself, the gospel has come by Jesus himself. This is not some guru. This is not some one with some speculative thinking or some philosopher. This is a message of salvation that came first through the Son of God. The, the same creator we just talked about in chapter 1, a sustainer and eternal sovereign king of chapter 1. That's the message. It demands our attention. Jesus came into Galilee at the beginning of his earthly ministry, Mark chapter 1, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. It's the characteristic of Jesus' message, the gospel. The gospel that, that God loves us, that God created us, and we rebelled against him. All of us have sinned and fall short, and yet God didn't leave us in the mess. God came to us in the person of Christ who lived a life of poverty and, 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 and died a grueling death, atoning for sin and rising from the dead. Repent. You're not your Savior. You're not your own Lord. Trust in Christ. The Lord himself gave the message. Then he also said that the message was attested to by eyewitnesses who remember the words, remember all that Jesus said during his ministry and gave it to them. And gave it to him, the author. And it was attested to us by those who heard. It was given to us by those who heard. So the recipients of Hebrews, like the author, heard the liberating message directly from the lips of the Lord, but depended on second generation Christians. In other words, they were given to it by the apostles. So the author of Hebrews, I believe, or at least the recipients, were second generations. They have heard it through Jesus, to the apostles, and then to them. Look at verse 4, the third account. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributing according to his will. The Lord himself, second generation, and now what he's saying in signs and wonders was a way in which God bore witness to this message of this truth. Well, we know according to Acts chapter 2 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that the signs and wonders authenticated the apostolic message. That was their proof that they were apostolic, that they had authority, was through the signs and wonders. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul spoke of signs, wonders, and mighty works as an indication that he was a true apostle. So you're following this? This, this message was given to us by God himself, verified through his apostolic witness, and now given to us through that witness we have in Holy Scripture, they had the words of those that that talked to them through learning it from Jesus. And now he's saying because of that assuredness, we have to pay attention. Seven affirmations, seven passages substantiate their claims, and this warning that came from the Son through the apostles and now to us. So my question for us this morning as we move to uh, point two is what in your life, what is it in your life? And you could jot this down, you could talk with it through your community group. What is it in your life that is distracting you, that is causing you to drift away, or that has caused you to drift away, or that is causing you to drift away from the supremacy of Christ? the superiority of Christ. What distracts you? How does the local church, how does the body of Christ, how does the people of God, community groups, gathering under God's word, help you from not drifting away? How important is that to you? Heeding the message. Helping the inflicted. Verse five. The next two will go a little faster. Verse five. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere. The author's not saying, I don't know where it is. He quotes Psalm 8 perfectly. He's just saying, it's, it, you all know where this is from. It's a divine matter. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, though... We do not yet see everything 
in subjection to him. It took a little while to figure out, I think, for me anyway, exactly what he's talking about here. Because if you look in your Bibles, or look here on the screen, in verse 6, it says, it used the title Son of Man. Small s, my Bible anyway, Son of Man. And what that means is there's, it's a reference to mankind in general. It's actually a direct quote from Psalm 8, a Psalm of David. And David is marveling at the beauty of creation. And he, he, he looks out, in fact, it opens up this way, you know, you know there's a song that goes like this. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and infants, and your strength, and the heavens declare your works. So all this stuff about creation. And he's quoting right from Psalm 8, and he talks about creation, and he talks about the crowning of man, mankind. We'll get to what that means in a minute. So is he talking about just mankind? Some people say the reference son of man is a reference to Jesus. It was the title that Jesus used for himself, more than any other title in all four gospel accounts, the Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. If you don't know that verse, look it up later. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Son of Man means he is the one in Daniel who is God himself that has dominion and power and, 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 and everyone worships him. It's God himself. And that's why when Jesus said, I am the Son of Man, you'll see the Son of Man coming in clouds. The Pharisees ripped their garments and said blasphemy. They knew exactly what he was saying. Jesus took the title Son of Man, recognizing his deity. So the author is quoting Psalm 8. And, here, and, and you need to catch this. I, I believe he's quoting Psalm 8 to encourage the faint-hearted, right? To help the afflicted. The ones who in chapter 10 say that they were struggling and suffering reproach, plundering of property. By telling them, that the treatment they are enduring will not last because of who they are as created beings, pointing to Jesus himself. Now, track with me. So far we've learned all about the beauty and sovereignty and kingship of Jesus, his reign and rule, his power and his authority, and he's sitting at the right hand until everything is subjected to him. Okay, we already learned that, closing of chapter 1, right? To which of the angels, chapter 1, verse 13, has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? There's a time that's going to come. Okay? There's a time when that comes. Now look at chapter 2, verse 5. It was not to angels that God subjected what? The world to come. You see the connection? Sit at my right hand until your enemies have become a footstool You're there, you're sitting, you're reigning, you're ruling, you're on my right hand, but you don't see everything of subjection yet. There's still enemies running around. And then verse 5 says, it was not the angels that God subjected the world to come. So he's talking about the world to come when everything will be subjected to Christ, when Christ will come and all the blessings and the reality of the new king, the new heavens and new earth and King Jesus will reign on earth. That new kingdom, that's what he's talking about. He's promising that when Christ comes, the consummation of all that takes place when Christ will finally reign and rule. The world to come. So in one sense, that consummation has already been secured. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. In another sense, it's not quite here yet. So think for a minute. You're the recipients of this letter. You're being persecuted. You're being hated. You're being tortured. And you're talking about Christ's reign and rule, and you're thinking, okay, when? When? He's reigning over the new kingdom. He's reigning over uh, the new humanity. Yet we find ourselves in this condition, in this hardship, in this persecution, this broken, fallen world. So when he quotes Psalm 8, the author will end up in showing that Jesus is the fulfillment, but he's trying to comfort them, help the afflicted, by reminding them that as vast and glorious creation is, as magnificent and glorious angels are, they don't compare to the crowning glory and achievement and authority and dominion that man has. That was given to him at creation and then one day in the new kingdom. The renewed and redeemed world to come when Jesus Christ comes the second time. So Psalm 8 and this text here reflects on creation 
moves to man's uh, insignificance, what is, what is mindful of man, you should think of him, and then marvels at the crowning achievement and care of his creation, creature, man and woman. So no matter how much you love your pet, no matter how much you love this world and its beauty, it does not compare to the crowning achievement and glory God gave to the Imago Dei, the image and likeness man and woman. Period. You, verse 7, made him, humanity, for a little while lower than the angels. Lower in a sense that they took on limitations. When you think of lower, think of limitation. Angels are spiritual beings only. We are physical and spiritual. We have limitations. You have crowned them, though, mankind, with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. The psalmist is overcome and the Hebrew writer who's, who's, who's bringing this into this text, thinking of the honor and the glory that God bestowed upon man. It's Genesis 1.26. There's no question in my mind when the author of Hebrews wrote, quoted Psalm 8 and the psalmist David wrote Psalm 8, he was thinking about Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man, mankind, in our image after our likeness. Let them, man and woman, have dominion over the fish Dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. Wouldn't that be nice? Bug, get away from me. <laughs> Such was the authority, the responsibility that was given to man over all creation. Yet the writer points out that we not, at present we don't see everything yet. And there's the problem. The problem they face, the problem we face today. The dominion over creation has been lost. Adam sinned, and, and as a consequence, his God-given dominion was lost and in many ways became twisted. Man's rule over creation has not been all that great. I'm all for the environment because God created it and I'm a steward of it, not because I'm worshiping it. We have to be very careful. Man's rule over creation has been a mess. It's been twisted. Chesterton said this, whatever is or is not true about man, the one thing is certain, man is not what he was meant to be, end quote. We had dominion. We lost dominion. What is interesting, though, here in this text as well is, if you look at the comparison, he points to Adam and Eve, and we know in Adam and Eve were given a message, don't eat. And it was an angel that came to them and lied to them, Satan, fallen angel. And now in here we're saying, listen, Jesus is better than angels. And his message is better than angels. Jesus is better. And you know, the enemy's theme, his schemes, his aim is to persuade us that God is not really that good. Despite the evidence, God is not that good. Don't listen to his message, but listen to the fallen angels instead, right? That's what they want. That's why when Satan tempted Eve, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree of the garden. Is that really what he said? Not really. And the woman said to the serpent, no, that's not really what he said. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that it's in the midst of the garden. And then she adds to the message, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Serpent says, oh, I got her now. You won't surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. They're already like God. They're in the Imago Dei. Knowing good and evil. Twisting the word of God, the message of God, and questioning the goodness of God. Aided by Eve, Adam eats the fruit. Sin enters the world. Man, who's created in the Imago Dei, crowned with honor and glory and dominion, becomes subject to the curse of God and subject to death. The curse marks mankind now, and the frustration of the world and their reigning and ruling over it has been taken away. And now we return to the dust. And that's the problem. Family, that's the problem. That's what Scripture teaches us, right? Paradise lost. Dominion and blessing that was given to us has now become the curse. And now all of Scripture speaks of the curse redeemer, the one who bears the curse, the one who redeems the earth. His name is Jesus. That's all what Scripture is. You have the, the beauty, creation, fall, curse, Christ. All the rest of the Bible pointing to Jesus. And now listen, if you're sitting in, the, in, the, in this congregation under this severe pressure and you recognize that Psalm 8 was sounded great but now we don't see everything subjected to, to, to us 
But, but in this small little place in Rome, this, 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 this small little church, this insignificant speck in the Roman Empire, someday I will reign and rule under Christ the whole universe. Be encouraged with that. That's what he's saying. You're not just this minuscule dot. God created you to reign and to rule and to take dominion over the earth. And yes, it's not there yet. It was once. It's been lost. It's going to be gained again. Take courage in that. Take courage in the already and the not yet. If when hardships and trials come, how do you perceive, how do you this morning perceive the not yet? The not yet. If you understand the already, the, the promise, the coming of Christ, the inauguration of the kingdom, the promise that someday he'll return, the, 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 it's already, he's already reigning and ruling. This not yet, this persecution, this trial will take on a different dynamics if you trust the return of Christ. I want you to bear with me. If you've been here for quite some time, I love using this illustration. I'm going to do it again real quickly. If you got hired in a light bulb factory to put a light bulb in a box every day for 10 hours a day, seven days a week, for 365 days a year, and at the end of that year you were given $1,500, you would not be happy doing it. But if I told you you do the same job over and over again at the end of the year, you get $15 million, you're going to do it with a big smile on your face. How do we perceive the already in the midst of the not yet? Lastly, but we see him. For a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for anyone. Do you see what the author is doing? He's taking Psalm 8. On the one hand, there is man imprisoned in sin under the curse, darkness in the paradise lost. And then onto the stage, he says, but the son the son of man, the second Adam. He's the hero. He's the answer. He's the great, the last, the only hope of a dying race, an earth that is fading away. He is the fulfillment not only of man's promised destiny, but of God's final plan written in Psalm 8 and in Hebrews 2. He's the new Adam over new creation. What Adam lost has now been regained Psalm 8 and here, this text, is not only a brilliant explanation of the significance of man in this vast cosmos, it's a messianic fulfillment in Christ. He is truly the Son of God, par excellence. And, and finally, everything that the psalmist celebrates, the Hebrews is celebrating, is fulfilled in Christ. He's reclaiming glory and honor and dominion. How does he do that? Look with me, three things. One, his humility. Look what it says in verse 9. But we see him, Jesus, for a little while, what? Made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, right? Again, we're not talking dignity. We're not talking importance or value. We're talking limitations. It was Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, eternally the Son, who has taken on humanity, who has come down and limited himself to the point of he needed to sleep, he needed to eat, he got tired, he got lonely, he, was, he, was, he walked the road of, of, of hard times, he limited himself. He didn't stop becoming God, stop being God. Philippians 2, he emptied himself. How? By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He left heaven's glory in eternity and took on flesh. And being found in human form, Philippians says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His humiliation brought him into this world to take on a body so that he can die. Jesus took on humanity for the sake of redeeming us, humbling himself under the angels as a man. And the deepest act of his humiliation is the cross, where the Lord died a death that was shameful before men, cursed before God, as he bears our shame, our guilt, our sins on the cross. That's his humiliation. And look at his suffering. It says, he suffered unto death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. God's grace. It is by God's grace. It is, he came 
while we were still sinners. He came for undeserving sinners like you and me. And he tasted death. The word tasted doesn't mean just a little bit. It means to experience, to know. That's the idiom. To know. And Jesus did not experience a lesser death than humanity. I would say he, he dealt not only death that we die, but a greater death. You ever wonder why more people died as a martyr? With singing and joy, but not Jesus? It's because Jesus, when he tasted death, he tasted the hot, fiery wrath of Almighty God for sin. Nobody has done that. Nobody could stand that. But yet Jesus, in a moment of time, takes the wrath of God, all the sin, folly, and stupidity of our sins, and the judgment and retribution that it deserves upon himself. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God turns his face in that moment of time. That is the definition of hell. Absence of the Father, of his love and his care. And he turns his face and Jesus there takes our sin, bears our wrath and suffers and dies. His humiliation, his suffering, and finally, look, it resulted in his exaltation. Because of Christ, his perfect life and sacrifice for sin, his glorious resurrection from the dead, he is now, look, crowned with glory and honor. He's worthy of our praise. He gets the reward because he suffered unto death. First the cross, then the crown. The exaltation of Jesus was the consequences of his humiliation, his incarnation, his humiliation, his suffering on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. Calvary is the road to glory. And when Christ was risen from the dead, God Father honored him. His perfect obedience vindicated his cause, accepted his sacrifice, and established his reign over the new earth, over the new humanity, over heaven and earth, and he endured that. And that's why Philippians 2, we pick up that even though he, death, he died on a cross, this is therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And all that Jesus has done for you this morning, all that Jesus has done for you and has done for me this morning, it's called grace. It's called Grace. It's not something that we initiated. Listen, God initiated salvation. God secured salvation. It's not us. It is divine grace. And without God's grace, we are without help and we are without hope. This truth is pressed home by Paul, as we mentioned earlier. I think Ricky was reading the scripture, but in Romans it says, we were helpless, we were still sinners, and we were still enemies of God, and God reconciled himself to us. John says, in this was love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins, 1 John 4. Family, all done by grace. A free gift. Man does not deserve it. Christ himself tasted death for our salvation. That's the grace of God. That is the grace of God. And know what? This communion table, I, I wanted this morning to remind us of the tension between the now and the not yet. Between what is present reality but not yet seen, that Christ is reigning and ruling, and the Christian experiences that we have, that we walk in, that has begun, will not be fully actualized until the final consummation, the promised final consummation at the end of the age. The Son's rule is already a reality, and that reality must be confessed, but we must put our faith in it, and it will impact us. So we're not looking back and saying, you know what, uh, we're, we're longing for this, for this world. We want things that are better than Jesus. We want to find things that want better. No, we're looking back. We're looking back to the cross. We're looking back to the superiority, the sufficiency of Christ. That's what we're looking back, his promise. And one day, even in the midst of trials and, and hardships and, and difficulties, the Bible says Christ will reign. It's momentary. Until the king of king comes. So no matter what we're going through, we're going to reign with Christ. We're going to rule with Christ. And that is all because Christ came in his humility, in his suffering, tasted death for all men, and then rose from the grave. So yes, we could say with the, with, with the author of Hebrews, we live in this world, we see him, and we see the brokenness of sin, we see the pain, we see in the sorrow, we see in the rebellion, we see it all. But we also see Jesus crowned with glory, 
We are see Jesus crowned with honor because he suffered to death. And by the grace of God, he tasted death for us. And that's what this table is about. The, the bread represents his body that was broken, the cup, the blood that was shed. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we want to invite you to the communion table. Jesus invites you to come. Not a king's chapel table, it's the Lord's table. It's the Lord's communion. He invites you to come, confessing your sins, whatever's been better in your life, forsaking that and trusting in Christ, in the supremacy and beauty and satisfaction of Christ. Come to the table. The band will play. We'll confess and repent and receive communion and celebrate his forgiveness. Let me read this verse to you and then as the band comes up. Listen to this verse. In light of everything we said this morning, listen to this verse. 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, okay? And when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he said this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. Until he comes. Does that matter to you? Does the already and not yet matter to you? What's drifting you away? But your eyes are not on Christ. Is it circumstances, hardship, something going on today? Not that keeping your eyes on Christ will change that in a sense of going away, but it'll have a drastic way in which we view it to give him glory, to give him honor, and to praise him alone. Father, as we come and continue to worship, as we sing and we take of the bread and we drink of the cup, help us, Lord, to use this time of communion to help us not to drift away to be remindful of the gospel, to be remindful of how sinful we are, but to be reminded how wonderfully loved and valued we are that you would go through such lengths, Lord Jesus, to die for our sins and to rise from the dead. So help us not to drift away. Lord, we pray, uh, Father, that we, in the midst of all that's going on, we will look to you to be satisfied in you and that this communion table will remind us of that truth and that, Father, together as your people, we will rest in and rely upon Jesus alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.